Uh, we're going to get into the sermon at this time, and we are going to take, uh, we're going to pause right now from our sermon on the book of John, and we'll continue it next week when everybody is back together here. Uh, we were on John chapter um, 5, I believe. Uh, was it 5? I think it was 5. We were on John chapter 5, but today we're going to pause for one week. We'll resume that next week, and today I just wanted to share something that I have been reflecting on in the life of David. And uh, I'm entitling this message, David, the evolution of a man after God's own heart. David, the evolution of a man after God's own heart. And um, the primary passage is going to be from 1 Samuel chapter 25 today. We're going we're to kind of do a whirlwind tour of the life of David in the book of 1 Samuel. But this is going to be the big passage, chapter 25. But before we get there, if we go to chapter 13, verse 14, this is the verse about, about the man after God's own heart. So now, here, God is, is judging Saul, King Saul, through Samuel, because he has been unfaithful. And this is what Samuel says to Saul, what he prophesies. But now, your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. This is the passage where we understand, where we come to know that David is that man after God's own heart. And if you've been in the church for a while, maybe you grew up in the church, I'm sure you've heard about this term, right? David was a man after God's own heart. Maybe you've prayed that for yourself before. I want to be a man after God's own heart. I want to be a woman after God's own heart. That's what I want to be as well. I want to be that person. Now, the question is, what I want to ask is, and, and what I've been reflecting on is, what does it mean to be a person, a man or a woman, who is after God's own heart? I don't know if you've ever thought about that. What does it mean to be a person after God's own heart? Maybe, you know, something that comes to mind for a lot of us might be oh, David and Goliath. Oh, you see how David, he was so brave. He represented Israel. Everybody was scared to go out and fight this giant Goliath, but David wasn't afraid. He trusted in God. He went out and fought Goliath. Goliath had a sword and a shield, and, and, and David just had, had, had some rocks and a sling. And he went out there and he defeated Goliath. What a man after God's own heart. Or maybe you think about how repentant David was, how soft his heart was. When he sinned, for example, when he committed adultery with Bathsheba, and she had, he had Bathsheba's husband Uriah killed in war, and he tried to cover it up. When his sin was pointed out by Nathan the prophet, David was quick to say, I've sinned. I have sinned. He didn't try to cover it up. He had a soft heart. He was quick to repent in that sense. Maybe that's what makes David a man after God's own heart. Or maybe it's because David was the, the sweet psalmist of Israel right? What a title, the sweet psalmist of Israel. He wrote all these psalms in the book of Psalms, all these songs that he composed to God that have become a part of our Bible. And in those, we see his heart for God. Uh, maybe it's that. What was it? You know, I, I, I think that it was probably all of these things together that made David a man after God's own heart. But, but, it, when I think about it, there's one thing 
that sticks out to me more than anything else. If we're to ask the question, is there one thing, Ulysses, is there one thing that really makes David a man after God's own heart more than anything else? I would say yes. And I would say it's this. It's not his bravery in killing Goliath. It's not his repentance of Bathsheba. It's not the Psalms that he wrote, but it's this. It's that David was a man who knew how to wait upon God rather than taking matters into his own hands. Let me say that again. David is a man who knows how to wait upon God rather than taking matters into his own hands. I think that that is such a defining characteristic of who he was, and I think it was a big part of why he was a man after God's own heart. And, and, and this is so important. Knowing and, and learning and being able to wait upon God rather than taking things into our own hands. And it's so pertinent for today because we as a society, we do not like to wait. We don't like to wait. We like to wait less and less and less. We are less and less able to wait. Nowadays, you want to watch a show? Bam! Netflix, Hulu, Vudu, whatever, you know, Disney, all the things. Six seasons, 30 episodes each, 180 episodes right there. You can binge from Monday till Sunday if you want to, except come to church. Come to church on Sunday. You can binge, you can, whatever you want, you can watch it right there, right now. I mean, we can't even, we can't even stand the fact that right now when they try to make you, you know, wait one week per episode, right? You know what I'm talking about? We see that now, we're like, oh my gosh. What, are you kidding me? I need to wait a whole week for the next episode? And the streaming service is like, what, are you kidding me? We need to make money. How am I going to make money off your seven-day free trial and you binge the whole thing and then you cancel? Come on, man. Come on, throw me a bone here, right? But we don't like that. We don't like to wait. We don't need to wait for anything. Amazon, you, you, and not just Amazon, all these different companies now, you want something, two-day shipping. Sometimes one-day shipping. Wait, waiting. You see that, that, that thing takes five to seven days on Amazon? Forget that. Forget that. I need my foam roller now. Stat. I got achy, achy. I, I need some foam roller love. I can't wait five days for that. We, we don't know how to wait. This affects our relationship with God. We pray, God, I want you to make me into a more patient person, and I want you to do that now. Now, God. Okay, some of you got that. Some of you got that. You're quick. You're awake this morning. We, this idea of, of waiting, not just waiting in general, but waiting upon God, learning how to be somebody who can wait upon the Lord, that is in short supply nowadays. But it's so important because I believe it's why David was honored with that title, a man after God's own heart. So if we are going to be a man or a woman after God's own heart, we need to learn how to wait upon God and not take matters into our own hands. Now, why do I say this? Why, why do I think David was like this? We could see it in his life. We could see it in his life. He didn't take matters into his own hands. When we, let me say this also. When we don't wait on God and we take matters into our own hands, man, we make a mess. We can make a mess, don't we? I, the example that sticks out to me the most is Abraham. Abraham in the Old Testament. 
God told Abraham in Genesis 15, you're going to have a son. Abraham's like, what? I'm old. That was his biggest need. He didn't have an heir in his family. God said, you are going to have a son. It's, you know, it's going to be miraculous, right? In his old age, Sarah's old, that they are going to have a son. They're going to have a child. And Abraham's like, okay, I trust you, God. I believe you. What happens? After a few years, a few years go, go by, Sarah's like, this ain't happening. <laughs> this ain't happening. And sex is weird because we're old. <laughs> this is really strange. Abraham's like, I know it's not happening. And what does Sarah say? Sarah says, take my maidservant Hagar, sleep with her. Maybe she'll get pregnant and then we'll have a family and her son will be counted as our son. And that's what they did. Sarah gave Hagar to Abraham. Abraham slept with her. Hagar became pregnant and they had a son and they named him Ishmael. Ishmael. Now, was that God's will? Was that the child of God's promise? Maybe Abraham said, yeah, maybe this is how God's going to make it happen. Maybe this is how God's going to fulfill his promise. No, that was Abraham and Sarah taking matters into their own hands. If you've read the Bible in Genesis 15 and 16, you know that that is not the child of promise. Later, Isaac became the child of promise. And you know what happened? Isaac and Ishmael butted heads throughout history led to so many different problems. A mess! Because Abraham took matters into his own hands. He didn't wait on God to fulfill his promise for God to work. It is so important for us to learn how to wait on God. So, now again, why do I say David is, is somebody who really knew how to do this? Well, before we get into chapter 25, let me read seven verses from the chapter before, from chapter 24, okay? This is, um, this is uh, what happens here. We know that Saul already is going to lose the kingdom, right? David has been anointed by God, okay? In chapter 24, David is on the run from Saul. Saul's trying to kill him, and it says this, but now your kingdom shall not continue, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. There it is again. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. This is Samuel telling this to Saul. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, here is the day of which the Lord, no, here is the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose stealthily and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men, and with these words, and, and, with these words, and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Now, this is, this is really, really 
amazing here. I know that if you have been in the church for a while, if you've heard the stories of David over and over again, maybe in your childhood or growing up, you might be very familiar with this story. When we read this, we, what's our natural, natural inclination? Oh yeah, David, yeah, of course. He didn't, he didn't take matters into his own hands. He didn't seize the kingship from Saul by killing him. David did the right thing. He did what he was supposed to do. But if we take a moment and we put ourselves in David's shoes, in David's shoes, I think we would find that it is, it's, it's not so obvious that David shouldn't have killed Saul. I think there were so many reasons or temptations, you could say, for David to say, no, this is the day. I'm going to kill Saul. I'm going to become king. There were loads and loads of reasons for David to do this. For example, David was already anointed by this point when he was younger. Samuel came by and anointed David to be king because Saul had already been rejected by God. So David could have said, I was anointed king. Hey, maybe that was the day where I officially became king and Saul's kingdom, kingship, is illegitimate. Maybe now is the time I kill him. He could have thought that. Saul had totally illegitimized his, his kingship. He had tried to kill David because he was jealous. He even tried to kill his own son, Jonathan, because he didn't like how Jonathan was friends with David. Saul, out of his tremendous paranoia, even killed a town of priests. He killed all the priests of the town of Nob because they helped David. They didn't know David. They didn't know there was anything wrong with helping David. David was a faithful guy to the kingdom of Israel. But Saul, out of his paranoia and his jealousy, killed this entire town of priests. He was an illegitimate ruler already in so many different ways. Not only that, even David's own men said to him, David, look, this is the will of God. Look, are you kidding me, David? Out of all the places Saul could have gone to pee... He walks into the cave that we are in by himself. And we're all up here loaded up with our weapons, surrounding him, like hugging the walls. And he's there in the corner peeing in the cave. David, if this is not the will of God, what is? This is the day that the Lord has made for you to take the kingdom. God has placed it in your lap. And I think that even David was thinking, maybe I should do this. Maybe I should do this. Why, why do I say that? Because he went and he cut off a, a piece of Saul's robe, but it says, it says that David was heartstruck. Why was he heartstruck? Because he cut off a piece of Saul's robe? I don't think so. I think that he was heartstruck. My opinion is that because he thought about it. Because he thought, maybe I should kill this guy. Maybe he was upset, annoyed, tired of being on the run, of this injustice, of being chased like a dog for no wrongdoing of his own. Maybe he thought, this is the day. I'm going to listen to my men. I am going to kill Saul. But it says that his heart was struck. He realized, I think he realized, no, this is wrong. This is not what I should be doing. What I'm saying is, 
there were a lot of reasons, a lot of temptations for Saul to no longer wait upon the Lord and to ta- for David to no longer wait upon the Lord and to take matters into his own hands. I think there is a ton of reason for that, but he doesn't. Now, now we get into the meat of our chapter here today. What happens in the next chapter, in chapter 25? Now, there's a bit of a long passage, but it's so, it's so amazing what happens here. So I, I hope you pay attention, and, and I think God, there's something so much here that God wants to tell us. It says, now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man in Ma'on whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife was Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent 10 young men, and David said to the young men, go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name, and thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time that they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to the men who come from I don't know where? I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, each man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David while 200 remained with the baggage. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us, both by day and by night, and while we were with them keeping, while we were with them keeping the sheep, all the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house, and he is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five sayas of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under the cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men were coming down toward her and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he's returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. 
Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard, regard this worthless fellow, Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. Nabal means folly in Hebrew. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord." and evil shall not be found in you as long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living, in the care of the Lord your God. In the lives of your enemies, he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord, according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief, or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause, or for my Lord working salvation for himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation With my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had not been left in the ball so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, He was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. This is God's word. That's the primary passage for this morning. Now, I don't want us to to miss what is going on in David's life right now. In verse 1, it says, it's of this chapter, it's so fast, it just says Samuel died. Samuel died, and then it moves on to this account of David and the ball. It seems just like a blip, like, like not much, but I think that's a really big deal for David. If you remember, Samuel was the one who anointed David king over Israel. He was the one. And, 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 and for this man to die while David was anointed king, waiting for the kingship, but he's being chased like a dog by Saul. He's there in the cave. People are telling him, take matters into your own hands, kill Saul. He doesn't do it. And, and, and he's, he's 
but he's still on the run. Life still stinks. And now the prophet, the guy who said, you are to be king, the reason David is waiting, he dies. I don't underestimate the impact of that, the symbolic impact of that upon David's heart. The guy who told me, I'm supposed to be king, the reason I'm out here on the run, being chased unrighteously by Saul, was because of what Samuel said to me. And now he died. Not only that, now I feel like we see in chapter 25, David at a really low point in the pits. David is really in the pits now. He's on the run. Him and his men are uncomfortable. They're out living in caves, living in the field. What are they doing? They're trying to survive. They're trying to survive out there. So for a period of time, they ended up hanging out near the shepherds of Nabal. And in some way, there was like this kind of, I don't know, like unspoken or maybe spoken in some way social contract that developed where David and his men protected Nabal's shepherds, protected their flocks. I mean, these are rough and tumble times. These are times where there are raiders, there's like tribal stuff going on. People will come and steal your flocks, they'll kill you. This stuff happens nowadays, right, in different parts of the world. This was real. Not with Nabal's flocks, because David's got 600 armed men there protecting Nabal, his wealth, his riches, everything that he has out there. Now comes shearing day. We don't have shearing day here, but they had shearing day there, which is when they go and they, they, you know, they shear all the wool off of their sheep and they do all that. And now that they've gotten the wool, the valuable wool with which to make clothing and all that, now some of these naked sheep can also be killed and eaten, right? It's a good time to be able to have a feast, to be able to have some mutton, to be able to eat some lamb. And David, seeing that it was shearing day, told his men to go ask Nabal for something for them as a token of appreciation, as some payment for all that they did in watching over his flocks out there. What does Nabal do? Nabal says, who are you? Who are you? Why should I give you anything? Lots of people are running away from their masters nowadays. Didn't you run away from your master? I don't know how this whole thing's going to turn out. You're on the run. I think Saul's got the upper hand. Why should I be on team David? I'm going to be on team Saul. Thank you for watching my flocks, but basically forget you. And I think, I think, I think David's just real low right now. I think this is like the bottom of the barrel for him. I'm on the run. I'm supposed to be king, but Saul's, Saul's chasing me. I'm out living homeless, out in the woods, out in the fields. Samuel, the prophet, the guy who said I'm supposed to be king, he died. And now we're just trying to get a bite to eat. And we do all this for this guy, and this is how he treats us. And I think David just, he's fed up. He's fed up. He tells his soldiers, his men, get your swords. We're going to kill this guy. We're going to kill all the men. We're, we're going we're gonna, to, he treats us like this, forget about it. So they strap on their swords. 400 of them start heading towards Nabal's home. Now, you know what happens. We just read it. Abigail, the wise and discerning wife of Nabal, hears about this through the servants and says, oh my goodness, load up the donkeys. 
get a whole bunch of stuff to give David and his men, right? Like sheep and figs and fruit and wine and whatever, cheese, all that stuff, right? Pack it up, load it, go quickly and meet David. And they go, they meet David, she goes to him, and, and what does she say? She, she bows down. She says, David, don't do this. David, don't, here, take this. Take this food, right? You deserve it. But what does she say to him? There's two key things that she says to him that I think really are, are just this turning point for David. What does she say to him? What does she say to him? She says, The Lord has restrained you from saving with your own hand. David, God is, God is stopping you right now. This is his mercy from you taking vengeance, you taking matters into your own hands. God, God is saving you from that right now. You don't need to do that. Put the sword away. You don't need to take vengeance into your own hands. That's the first thing she says to him. What's the other thing she says? In verse 28, she says, you don't need to do this because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. What's she saying to David? She's saying, David, David, what are you doing out here? What are you doing out here, bro? You, you don't need to be doing this. Who are you coming to fight? You're coming to fight in the ball? That fool? That's who you're coming to fight? You don't need to do that, David. You don't fight these fools. You fight the battles of the Lord. You fight the enemies of the people of God. That's who you are, David. Those are the right battles to fight. You don't, this is not the battle to fight. You don't need to fight against this fool and take vengeance in your own hands. You don't need to do that because you fight the battles of the Lord. What, what, is, what is Abigail basically saying to David? She's saying, you have a choice. Remember, Nabal means fool. Nabal means fool. What parents, right? Gosh, great name. I don't know, maybe, maybe it's like more kind of a literary thing here. But anyways, his name means fool. This is David's choice. This is what Abigail's saying to him. David, you can either trust God, trust in God, and let him deal with this fool, or you can take revenge and become a fool yourself. That's your choice. You trust God and let him deal with this fool, or you take revenge. You take matters into your own hands, and you become the fool. Which will it be? And what does David say? David says, praise God. Praise be to God that you've saved me, Abigail, from taking matters into my own hands, from working my own salvation, from having this blood on my hands, from not trusting in God, not letting vengeance be the Lord's. Thank you. Thank you, Abigail. And what did David do? David walked away. David walked away right? And then, then what happens? The amazing thing happens here, right? Abigail goes home. Nabal's drunk. She waits till the morning. She tells him what happened, that like you were this close to being killed. Death was on your doorstep for you and every male here. David was about to kill everybody. And then what is, what has happened? What happens to Nabal? He like has a heart attack, right? And then he falls over and he dies. He dies. Why? Because God strikes Nabal. God takes vengeance for David. God deals with this fool. And David hears about this. He says, blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal. 
and who has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. God judged Nabal. Now, remember, remember the first verse that I read today in chapter 13, where Samuel said, God is looking for a man after his own heart, not like you, Saul. He's going to find a man after his own heart to become king. Do you remember what Saul did to be judged by God? A few verses earlier, Samuel had told Saul, told Saul, wait there seven days in a particular place, and then I'm going to come and I'm going to give an offering to the Lord. This is what he said. But what happened? Samuel didn't get there at the time that Saul was expecting. The Philistine army was gathering and about to attack Israel. Saul's getting nervous. His men are getting nervous. His men begin to leave him. His army begins to shrink. So what does Saul do? Saul gets nervous. He doesn't see Samuel anywhere. He says, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offering. And it says, and he offered the burnt offering. So what did he do? He was supposed to wait for Samuel. Samuel was supposed to come, present this offering. But Saul, instead, he takes matters into his own hands. He tries to control the situation. He offers the burnt offering. And this is what leads to his rejection as king of Israel. All the more, this is why I think, what is a man after God's own heart? Somebody who doesn't take matters into his own hands. Now, chapter 25, I really believe, was this turning point for David. Because I I want you to see what happens here. These five verses, the next chapter, okay? The next chapter in in chapter 26, verses 6 through 11, a very similar thing happens with Saul and David. It says this, Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite, and to Joab's brother Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, who will go down with me into the camp of Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head. And Abner in the army lay around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. What's he saying? We got into the middle of the camp. Nobody woke up. This is a supernatural thing. It was. God actually put them all in a deep sleep. Abishai is like, you didn't kill him when he was peeing. God's giving you a second chance. Let me pick up this spear and stab this guy right to the ground so that you can become King David. You missed your first opportunity. Here's your second opportunity. Don't miss it, David. Don't miss it, David. Now, But look at David's response now, after chapter 25, after the experience with Nabal. Listen to David's response. It says in verse 9, But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed, but now take the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. Do do you hear the difference in David's voice here? 
I don't know if you hear it. I hear it. I hear it. Listen to his confidence. No, Abishai, don't kill him. I know it's easy pickings. We can kill him right now. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't touch the Lord's anointed. We wait upon the Lord. God will make things happen in God's time. And just like he did with Nabal, God will either strike Saul or Saul will die or he's going to go down into battle or he's going to like fall off a cliff or he's going to get bitten by a poisonous snake or he's going to eat a bad fig and it's, he's going to die from that or he's going to, who knows what's going to happen. Something will happen. God will do it. Even if he has to die of old age and then at that point I become king. Whatever it is, it doesn't matter. God will do it. Don't touch him. See, in chapter 25, David changed. He saw when God struck Nabal, he saw, I don't need to take matters into my own hands. I wait upon the Lord. That's what we do. We wait upon the Lord. We don't take matters into our own hands. We let that be in the hands of God. This is why David was a man after God's own heart. Brothers and sisters, there's so many things in life where we're so tempted to take matters into our own hands, aren't we? We, we want to take matters into our own hands. We don't want to wait on God. We want to do it ourselves. One really obvious example is obviously taking revenge and vengeance, just like David here, like he could have done with Nabal. If somebody talks smack about you, man, I want to I talk smack about them. Somebody wrongs you, man, I want to wrong them. You ever have like revenge fantasies, you know? Like I've, I've, I've been Christian long enough where it's like, okay, God, I shouldn't take revenge but I take revenge in my mind. I have revenge fantasies. Sometimes, man, somebody cuts me off on the highway all day, all day. Somebody says something, some smart, smart aleck comment to me, and it kind of hits me inside. I'm like, oh, I should have said this. Oh, that would have been so good. If I could have said that to him, I would have got him. He would have had nothing to say. He would have been like, I would have made him look so bad. I should have done that. You know what I'm talking about? Am I the only one here? We're, we're, we, we want to take revenge. We want to get back at people. But the Bible says, God says, let vengeance be the Lord's. He will repay. Don't take that into your own hands. Even, even if it means throughout an entire lifetime, it seems like somebody never repents of what they did to you. Somebody never says sorry. Somebody thinks that they were right, even though they were so wrong, till the day that they die. God is the just God of all the earth, and everybody will stand before him in judgment. We can wait upon the Lord and let judgment be his. This is the hope of anybody in this world that has experienced atrocity has experienced unspeakable, unjust things at the hands of others, genocide, rape, you name it, whatever it is. This is the only way, because people get away with stuff, that, that we can know vengeance belongs to the Lord. The God of all the earth 
everyone will stand before him one day and give an account for all that they've done, and I can release that anger, that desire for revenge in my heart, and give it to God. Give it to him. You know, somebody once said, um, bitterness is like drinking poison and hoping that the other person dies. Have you ever heard that? I think that's a really good description of bitterness. How do you expect me not to be bitter when people wrong me and get away with it? Because we can trust in God, put things in his hands, and let God be the one who judges. Friends, we do, this is so pertinent in um, dating life. Some of you, maybe you've been dating for a long time, You've been on all those apps, you have app fatigue, you're tired of it, and you've been, you've been looking for a long time, looking for somebody who loves the Lord, somebody like you who shares your values, who loves Jesus, who, who wants God to be the center of his or her life so that you can, you can have a life together of pursuing God together, which is right and awesome and so good. But maybe it's, 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 it's been so long that you start thinking, maybe, maybe God needs a little bit of help here. Maybe I should uh, widen my parameters a little bit. Maybe it's not such a big deal that this person doesn't love Jesus. That maybe it's not such a big deal that the most fundamental thing in life, in the universe, who God is to you, that I differ from him or her on that. Maybe it's not such a big deal. Friends, that's, that's when we begin to take our marriage, our romance life into our own hands, and it doesn't go well when we take matters into our own hands instead of waiting upon the Lord, trusting in Him, trusting in His provision that God will bring whatever I need in my life, whether it's the right person to marry or even if he's called me to singleness, he will give me that joy and contentment in being single. And I know some of you are like, no, but God, God's plan is perfect. And we can wait upon him and trust him rather than taking things into our own hands. Man, we need, to, we need this in our relationships with each other. I, you know, there, there are things about Christine that I wish God would change. And... There are many more things in me that I know Christine wants God to change. And, 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 I, and I, I could go and try to force that change upon her and say, why don't you change? What's wrong with you? Husbands and wives, you know how that goes usually, right? You know how that goes. But instead, instead of patiently waiting upon God, it doesn't mean we don't talk. We don't want to try to work through our issues. But so often, we just want that person to change. We want them to change now. Rather than learning to pray and wait upon God, to lift your spouse up to the Lord and say, God, I trust in your work in his or her life. I trust you with that. How many of us, in our, even in our friendships, in our relationships with others, we lack that patience to see God's work fulfilled, that work of maturity, that work of change in that person's life, but we try to change them now. And if they don't, we leave them, we drop them, we walk away. 
Brothers and sisters, a man, a woman after God's own heart is somebody who learns how to wait upon the Lord, how to trust God and let God be the one to bring his will about. Look, this is, and I close with this here. Jesus, when he was arrested and his disciples, Peter took out a sword, began to fight. What was he fighting for? For Jesus' kingdom to come now. For Jesus to become king of Israel. That's what he wanted, to bring about the revolution. What does Jesus say? Put your in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it be so? What's Jesus saying? You think, like, if I wanted to become an earthly king by force, you you think I couldn't do it? I could do it in in a moment. I could do it in a heartbeat. God, 12 legions of angels, bam! Pontius Pilate gone, Romans gone, Pharisees gone. I could lead. I could do that myself. But that's not the way, way. That is not the will of the Father. For Jesus, it was about trusting in the will of the Father, going to the cross, dying, rising again from the grave, and being exalted to the right hand of God the Father. That is the way of the cross, of the way of trusting in God. And sometimes trusting in God, it is so hard. It's like the cross. We're like Peter, no, no, God, I don't want to trust you with my children. I don't want to trust you with my finances. I don't want to trust you with my spouse. I don't want to trust you with with this bitterness in my heart. I don't want to do that. I want to take out the sword. I want to make things happen. I could do it with a spreadsheet. I can, I'm a can-do type of person. I can make things happen in my life. I trust in myself. That's us. That's our temptation. But the way of the cross It's hard. It is hard to say, I will put down my sword. God, I will trust in you. I will wait upon you. I will wait upon your deliverance. I want you to do things your way and not my way. But when you do, God is forming something in you, a heart that is after his own heart. Will you, brothers and sisters, this morning, what is there that you need to wait upon the Lord for this morning? In what way do you need to trust him in your life? Let's stand together and I'm going to invite Kevin up here as we respond in worship. If we could come before the Lord right now, and I just want to ask you, let's take a moment. What What might God be putting his finger on in your heart? In what way is he asking you to trust him? If you're a parent, maybe he's asking you to trust him with your kids. Sometimes we we try to mold our kids forcibly into the good, obedient, Christ-loving kid that we think they should be. And that's good. We should guide them and direct them. But 
Maybe sometimes we let that frustration or that fear kind of take over and we try to force things rather than trusting in God, rather than really going to Him in prayer, lifting our children up to Him and saying, God, have your way in them. Maybe some of you this morning here are, you're really, you're really trying to make life work for you. You have this kind of vision of what success means and where you should be at this point in your life and and you're frustrated because maybe life isn't going according to your plans the way that you thought it would and, and you find yourself very tempted to try to make things happen. And, and, and maybe it's like switching jobs or investment strategies or maybe moving here or moving there, living here, living there, just changing all these things in your life and maybe, maybe God is going to speak to you. Maybe God's asking you, would you entrust your life, the plan of your life, your direction, your future to me. Stop trying to make things happen. But instead, trust me in prayer and laying down our lives to him. Maybe it's trusting God in his timing for marriage and dating relationships. Whatever it is, brothers and sisters, let's, let's come before the Lord right now and can we take a couple of minutes right now just in prayer to respond to this message Ask God, Lord, like David in chapter 25, maybe you feel like you're in that low point. God, show me. Show me your beauty. Show me. Give me that Abigail moment. Help me to see. Yes, I don't, I don't want to take matters into my own hands. No, I want to trust in God. That's the direction I want to go. Ask God, Lord, give me that revelation. Give me that conviction. Give me that faith to say, I will trust you, God. I will Help me to see you in this moment of anxiety, of fear, of trusting myself. Help me to see you in this moment right now. Let's come and ask the Lord. Let's bring our hearts to him. Ask God to do that in your life.